0: open your Bibles to the 107th Psalm, Psalm 107, which we'll be studying this morning. You'll find the, uh, the outline, the notes in the bulletin. And let's begin our time by reading the 107th Psalm, all 43 verses. This is the first Psalm of book five of the Psalms. The Psalms are divided into five books. And this begins book five and our, our final six or seven weeks in the psalms for now. We've been going book by book, looking at a sampling of psalms. So let's read Psalm 107. <clears> oh, <throat> give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. And gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from all their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul. He fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools their sinful ways. And because of their iniquity, they suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in their songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Then... turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into a thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he let the hungry dwell and they established a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly. He does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. He raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Lord God, We would be wise, and we would consider your steadfast love. And so, Lord, open our eyes now to see, to behold wondrous things in your word. Lord, unite our hearts to fear your name. Let us rejoice in your salvation. Let us see these wonderful truths of your saving, steadfast love and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 107, Rescued, Ransomed, and Redeemed. Now, if you are new to Martinsdale, what we've been doing over the last two years is in between various book studies or series, we've stopped and done five or six weeks through each of the five books of the Psalms. Um, the, the Psalms were finally compiled. They're written over about a thousand years or more, but finally compiled by some post-exile compiler into a fivefold division that mirrors the fivefold division of the books of Moses. And so book by book we've gone through and one of the things that has become evident in the arrangement of the Psalter is that whoever arranged it is is developing themes. And so the first two books of the Psalter are heavily davidic with the majority of David's psalms written in them. And then when you get to the end of the third book and, and the psalms that come at the seams, the first and last songs, psalms in the books, really seem to develop a theme. Psalm 89 ends with the apparent break of the Davidic line. And we've studied that, about how the psalmist celebrates, rehearses, recounts the promises to David, and yet says, but, but where are they? And so book four, in many respects, that we just looked at last time, is, is helping the people cope with psalms that are arranged to help the people cope with exile, we, we have a hard time relating to this because we, the church um, has no geographic center. The church is multinational, multi-geographic. There, wherever God's saints gather, there is the local church, house by house, location by location. But if you were an Israelite living at this time, if you're an Israelite living now, the land is hugely important. All the way back to the covenant with Abraham, God had promised the people a land And they received the land under Joshua. And because of their sin, they were taken from it. And so book four deals with that. And the final psalm of book four, and I want you to look at Psalm 106, with which our psalm is closely connected. Um, One of the close connections is notice the similarity between Psalm 107, verse one, oh, give thanks to the Lord for his good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Psalm 106, verse one, praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Psalm 106, despite being introduced as a praise to Yahweh, the overwhelming majority of it is a recounting of Israel's sins. And I suggested when we studied this back in the fall, that it's as though the Israelites in Babylon are trying to come to grips with why they're there. And here is somebody saying, God is good, we were faithless. And there's this recounting of Israel's rebellion in God's faithfulness and Israel's rebellion in God's faithfulness and Israel's rebellion in God's faithfulness. It's basically them saying, we deserve what has happened. God is in the right for judging us. And it ends with this cry of hope. Psalm 106, the fourth book of the Psalms, ends, verse 47. Save us, O Lord our God. And gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory to your praise. Then, book five begins, and look at verse three. And he gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. You see, Psalm 107 is the answer, is celebrating God's answer of yes to the prayer of Psalm 106, verse 47. Psalm 147, Israel is confessing their sins, confessing God's goodness and justice in disciplining them. And yet at the end, there's this cry of hope. Yes, we deserve this, Lord. Yes, you've been more than gracious with us. But, oh, Lord, would you regather us? Oh, Lord, would you bring us back? And Psalm 107, celebrating the Lord's rescue, that he has ransomed and redeemed them. And so as we look through this, we're going to study and look for God's goodness, his saving works. This is a joyous psalm. So let's dive in. There's 43 verses, so we will move quickly. And let's look at the first 3 verses. Praise the steadfast love of the Lord. The first 3 verses serve as kind of an introduction to the whole psalm, a call to worship. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands. So the exhortation and the theme of this psalm is the Lord's steadfast love. At least that's how the ESV translates it. And it's hard to get across what is meant by this because it's a a very specific term in Hebrew. It's the Lord's chesed, it's his covenant love. It's his loyal love. It's not the love that he has towards the whole universe. There's a sense in which God loves all of his creation. He loves the sparrows, and he loves the birds, and he loves the plants. And it's not the love that he shows in sending out the reins to the just and the unjust. This is, a, this is a special term that the ESV at least translates consistently, steadfast love, is covenant love. It's the love God has for his people in covenant. We could speak of his gospel love. Abner has a Jesus Storybook Bible about God's never-ending, never-letting-go, always-and-forever love. That's the notion. And so we're not just talking about God's goodness in general. We could do that. There are psalms that talk about God's goodness in general. Oh, look at how he orders the stars. Look at how he takes care of the universe. This is a psalm for the redeemed. This is for the covenant people. The call to worship is a call for the covenant people, the people who are saved and redeemed to worship, and they're focusing their thanks on his steadfast, faithful love. And so that's what we want to look for here. We're expecting to see in this psalm a call, examples of God's loyal, covenant, gospel love. Notice how the psalm ends all the way at the end. Again, the same theme picking up, making this, this point clear. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord, so we got our theme here. What we're looking for, we're trying to consider. What we're trying to see is specifically the greatness, the goodness of God's steadfast love. That's the exhortation. And then it speaks of those who are redeemed. Twice is their names the redeemed. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble and gathered from the lands. What this is a reference to in your blanks here is the return from Babylon. The return from Babylon. Psalm 106, they're in Babylon crying out, Oh God, bring us back. Psalm 107, he has. He has regathered them from the east and from the west, from the north and the south, which is to say from everywhere. They're back. They have been redeemed. They're back in the land. This this is the answer. These, These bookends go together. The end of book four cries out, And the beginning of book seven answers, the Lord has heard. I mean, isn't that good to know that God answers prayer? And and I'm just thankful the compilers put this together to highlight this, this, this urgent, heartfelt cry at the end of Psalm 106, answered in Psalm 107. And then what we begin to look at, the heart of the psalm, moving into our second point, is pictures of the steadfast love of the Lord. This is really the centerpiece of the psalm. There are four scenes, four vignettes, four pictures of God's faithful love. And there's a lot of structural similarity. We have, we have songs, we've sung them this morning, that have verses and choruses and verses and choruses. And some parts of the songs we sing have words that do not repeat and some have words that do repeat. Well, at least in this psalm, that continues. Notice this. Verse 4, some wandered. Verse 6, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. Verse 8, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works, the children of men. Those, those are the parts that get repeated. Each one of these is introduced with a sum. Now looking at a new picture, and we see their plights, the situation they're in. Their prayer is identical in every time. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 13. Look at Verse 19. Look at verse 28, they all say, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And then there's a provision, the Lord is going to respond somehow, and in in all four cases it's a little different, as it fits their situation, but then that brings on an an invocation to praise, which is always again identical. Look at verse 8, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works, the children of man. And again, repeated in verse 15, verse 21, verse 31. So we've got four scenes, four pictures of God's saving work. In each instance, there's a different plight, a different predicament somebody's in, which provokes them to a uniform prayer. The prayer, the cry for help is identical in every one of the four instances which then brings on a provision of grace and salvation, which is different in all four cases, which then yields a call to praise, which is identical. You, you see the structure. You've got four nice verses with parts that repeat. Now, as you're thinking through this, and one of the things I wrestled through with this is, are these supposed to be seen as specific instances in Israel's history? Or, as I've come to think, are these sort of the types of salvation God gives? These, I, and that's where I sorry, kind of land There are no specific historical markers as there are in some psalms where they talk about Meribah or on the day in the wilderness. What I think is going on here, these are things God has literally done. But the point is this, as these exiles return from Babylon, they're finding different ways to speak of God's salvation. They're finding different ways to think about God's great saving acts. It's hard to see how all four of these take place in returning from the Babylonian captivity. It's hard to see, for instance, how the exiles in Babylon are going out in the sea and fishing and going places. It's possible. It's possible. It has, each one of these has very specific historical events behind them. But I think based on the, the lack of those type of notes that we're to see four scenes. Also, our ESV says some, 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 some in verse 4, some in verse 10, some in verse 17, some in verse 23. The Hebrew lacks that. Rather than, here's four different groups, I think here's four different ways of looking at God's salvation. I think the psalmist is looking at this as ways of describing God's deliverance from Babylon. And the New Testament picks up on this and applies these same images and pictures to Christ. So let's dive in looking at these four pictures of the steadfast love of the Lord. First, verses four to nine. He regathers lost wanderers. He regathers lost wanderers. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men, for he satify, satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. So what's their plight? We're gonna, in each of these pictures, we're going to work through the plight, the prayer, the provision, and the praise. What's their plight? Lostness. There's, there's no indication there's sin here. In fact, there's, there's some correlation here in a, in a classic Hebrew ordering. The outer two of the four, there's no clear reference to the sinfulness of the people. What happens to them isn't necessarily their fault. Whereas the inner two, the second and third, clearly stated what's happening to them is their fault. So here, people who are lost, people who are thirsty and hungry, exiles, homeless, um, without knowing where to go. And again, in, in a world with GPSs, it's hard for us to relate sometimes, but have you ever been lost? You ever been out in the woods or hiking and, and lost and felt actually that fear? That concern, where am I going to sleep? Where am I going to get shelter? Where am I going to get food? And, th- and this might, might be conceptual for us. We've probably seen movies where people are facing this. This is a real vivid picture that people living in this day could understand. And the picture here is that they, they had no city to dwell in. You want to pick up on that phrase because it gets developed twice more. Notice that. They wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. And yet the provision in verse 7, he led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. And that gets picked up again in verse 36. There he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in. It's this notion of homeland, which again is so central to, to Israel's identity. So their plight, they're lost. They're wanderers, they're hungry, they're thirsty, they're exposed They're in a sorry state. Their prayer, they cry out to the Lord. And and understand, God intends our difficult scenarios, our difficult situations. He intends our plight to cause us to cry out to him. That's their intended purpose. You can't miss the pattern here. People are in a bad situation, sometimes of their own doing, sometimes not of their own doing. The response is uniform. They call out to God. And his response is equally uniform. He delivers them. So they pray, they cry out, God, deliver me, deliver us. And his provision, he delivers them. And, and then it unpacks that even further in verse 7. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. And, and I think the reason this is first is this is the clearest, and most obvious picture of the return to Israel. They're back, even though they were gone from the land for 80 years, Jerusalem is still there upon their return. And they, they take possession of the land again. And they begin to rebuild the temple again. God has once again given them a homeland. Now, the interesting thing is the New Testament takes this picture. We may not think of this ourselves, but understand you, you if you're a Christian, you have a homeland. You have a city. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in three passages. Hebrews 11, 13 to 16, speaking of all our father's And mothers in the faith who have died before us, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a heavenly city. Okay, well, that's nice for them. But then he assumes that is then true of us. Listen to a chapter later, Hebrews 12, 18 to 24, speaking of when we came to, to God through Christ, what happened? You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given. Indeed, if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. You see, one of, the, one of the things that's true is that when we have come to Christ, one of the things the gospel puts out to us is, yes, we can be forgiven, and yes, we can be restored, but we, we have an inheritance, and we have a new identity, and we have a homeland, and we have a citizenship, which is why a chapter later in Hebrews 13 13 to 15 Therefore, let us go with him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For we have no lasting city. For, he, for here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. And if you remember how the book of Revelation ends, what happens? The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. See, in a very real sense, the Lord in saving us has given us a homeland, has given us a city to dwell in. Um, this, this, this reality, which I think the, the land in Israel is meant to be a picture of, it was meant to be a shadow of, um, and I do believe that Israel will be restored to the land, but all this talk of cities and, and homeland sets up, the New Testament runs with it and says, well, there's a heavenly city, there's a heavenly homeland. And the Lord's steadfast love has prepared that for us. We have an identity, we have a family. A homeland for aliens and strangers. Praise the Lord's steadfast love. That then invites the praise. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works, the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. So our first picture, the plight, people who are aliens, people who are homeless, people who are hungry, they cry out to God. He delivers them. They now have a home. They now have a refuge. They now have food. They're satisfied. Praise God for his steadfast love. Picture two. He releases rebellious prisoners. He releases rebellious prisoners. And here, whereas there's nothing explicitly stated in the first case that it was their fault, in the case of Israel's history and the deportation from the land, it was indeed their fault, here we're told clearly, some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God. They had spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze, and he cuts in two the barns. barns Barns, sorry, the bars of iron. Never seen a barn of iron, sorry. Um, (laughs) He releases rebellious prisoners. So what's the plight? Plight is imprisonment. Heavy labor, hard labor, chains, gloom, darkness being near death. And again, this has happened in Israel's history. They were slaves in Egypt. They They were taken in chains to Babylon. But one of the reasons why I think, rather than having any particular image in mind, why I think these are scenes of salvation is because this verse actually gets referenced by John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, in speaking of the ministry of his son and the Messiah. Listen to Luke chapter 1, 76 to 79. This is Zechariah prophesying about John the Baptist, his son. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. there it is. He's referencing this psalm. What he's saying is John the Baptist is going to go as a forerunner of one who will do exactly this, one who will release prisoners, one who will shine light on those in the darkness. Ultimately, the salvations pictured here are salvations Jesus brings. Jesus brings, and ultimately his work brings the new Jerusalem down to earth. Jesus ultimately frees prisoners. It's true, God had literally filled prisoners released prisoners, freed prisoners. They'd been freed from Babylon. But I think the ultimate point here is these are the types of things God in his steadfast love does. They're prisoners. It's their fault. Notice there's no blame shifting. There's no attempt to say this is too hard. No, they they did it. They deserved it. And they cried to God in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. You know, Jesus as well views this aspect of his ministry as a significant purpose for why he came. Listen to Luke four, sixteen to 21. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Then he begins to read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up a scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is good news. We're to praise the steadfast love of the Lord. He brought Israel and freed them from their oppression, but ultimately, his son comes to set captives to sin free. Ultimately, his son is the one who will shine the light of the gospel on us. And so we see our God is a savior such that he frees people who are in bondage. He frees people who are really in bondage. He did that with Israel. But that is meant to to be a picture, a metaphor to show us of the, the bondage to sin which Jesus comes to free us from. And again, what does it take on our part? We cry out. We cry out for help. That's all it takes. There's there's not works that we do to be saved. We, We cry out to God. We cry out to his son. And he acts and he saves and he rescues and he ransoms and he redeems. Picture three. He restores sick fools. He restores sick fools. So let's look at the plight. Some were fools of their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. So if, if the second picture shows the issue of judgment and guilt and punishment, here, it's, it's the temporal consequences. It's, it's self-induced sickness. Um, the Bible makes it clear sometimes there's a sickness that comes on because of Sin. Maybe a modern-day example of someone making themselves sick like this would be drug addiction, alcohol addiction. You know, where people, because of their own foolishness, because of their own sinfulness, because of their own choices, are wasting away spurn food. They, they loathe any food. They drew near to the gates of death. And so another way to look at their, their deliverance in Babylon, another way to look at their problem that God had saved them from was the the temporal spiritual effects. The wages of sin is death, and the interim payments is disease and sickness. And so they were foolish, and they were sinful. They loathed the food, they drew near to the gates of death, and then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. In all these instances, they do the same thing. They just cry out to God. If, If you've messed up, if you aren't where you should be, if you have done something to yourself, that's okay, you can cry out to God. He can save you. He can deliver you. And I love this in verse 20. How does he save them? How does he deliver them? He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. God's word is what God uses to heal and to deliver. It's how how he delivers them here. It's how he delivers us now. Healing and deliverance by the power of his word. And then, Number four, he rescues storm tossed sailors. Now, again, the second and third picture are things people have done to themselves. But The first and the fourth is no indication of, of culpability of the, the people in a tough plight. We'll read this one Some went down to the seas and ships, verse 23, doing business in the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord. His wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits ends. Picture simple. People are going out in a boat to go fishing, to do some trade. And the Lord, notice it, it's the Lord commands and creates the storm. The Lord commanded, verse 25, and raised the stormy wind. And the picture of this mountains and going down is simply the, the, the tops of the waves and the troughs at the bottom. And this is such a heavy sea, it's like mountains and valleys. And, and the sailors are terrified. Their courage melts away, and they stagger as if drunken men, and they're at their wits' ends. Literally, their, their wisdom is swallowed up. And, and the picture here is this. We, because of our intelligence and because of our smartphones and because of our cars, we can forget that we live in this world by permission, not by skill. We live here by permission from God. And every time a tornado comes through a town, anytime a tsunami happens, we're reminded that we live in an uncertain and unstable world and that we need the Lord's favor. We need the Lord's provision. We need the Lord's protection to to continue to abide here. And so here are some sailors going out. They're doing their thing. They're going to make some business, we assume, or travel somewhere, and the Lord causes a storm to rise up, which is an interesting thing to note because we're praising his steadfast love, and in God's steadfast love, he terrifies these sailors. Notice that. There's no way around that because look at verse 24. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, and then verse 25, 26, and 27 explains what those wondrous works are. Which, what wondrous works? Well, he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wit's ends. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm to be still. The waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man. Notice that exact same phrase. They saw God's wondrous works and then they're to praise God's wondrous works. You mean God, these people are being called upon to thank the Lord, to praise God for raising up a mighty storm? If that's what it takes to get your attention, if that's what it takes to call cause you to call upon the Lord to save you, then yes, you should thank him for his wondrous works. They saw his wondrous works and were terrified and undone. They called out to God. He responded, and you could add to his wondrous works the the calming of the sea, but the whole package deal they saw, and then they're called upon to praise God for. I mean, understand that whatever God uses to humble you, whatever God uses to get your attention, whatever God uses to, to cause you to cry out to him is Good. And you should thank him for it. One of the things that's interesting in this psalm, and we're gonna move on to the final section in a minute, you're gonna see God's steadfast love doesn't just do things that we would initially look at as nice. Doesn't always do things we would initially look at as, ooh, yay. But he always acts with our best interest in view, ultimately, his glory in view. And so here, you can see how Even though this terrifying thing happens, it results in them calling on God. It results in him delivering them, and it results in them seeing him work powerfully. And so they thank him for it. They praise him for it. Peace and security in a tumultuous world. And you you can't help but think of 500 or so years later, a bunch of Jesus' disciples experiencing something very similar. And a great windstorm arose in Mark four thirty-seven, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling, but Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care? We are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. This is another picture, right, of, of what God does. And he's literally done this. I'm not saying it's only a picture. But our God is the God who stills the storm. Our God is the God who gives security. If you're with him, he's with you, you're safe. And and we don't have to live through life terrified of what's coming around the corner and constantly um, shaken. We can have a peace and a security because God can either calm the storm or God can just strengthen us to go through it. But he wants us to learn to rely on him. He, He creates a storm to cause sailors to call out to him so that he can show them that he is a savior, that he will sustain them, that he will protect them. Which brings us then to the final section of the psalm, verses 33 to 34. We've looked at the four scenes, pictures of the steadfast love. Finally, point three, ponder the steadfast love of the Lord. What happens now as the psalm comes to a close is the psalmist envisions the radical reversals of God's providence in nature. And again, these are still supposed to be seen as evidences of God's steadfast love. When I said earlier that that it's not just looking to see God's steadfast love in the things that we view as kind, the things that we view as happy and good, but seeing the whole picture, how God works in us and through us, that even our trials, even our disciplines, are displays of a steadfast love. Last week, Jeff Zimmerman argued strongly that, that church discipline, Something as unpleasant as that is a demonstration of God's steadfast love for his people. It is an outpouring of love. Because notice this the, the whole Psalm's about seeing God's steadfast love, verse 33. He turns the rivers into a desert. Huh. Springs of water into thirsty ground. A fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water and parched land into springs of water. I like that. And there he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly and he does not let their livestock diminish. But notice, both of these are demonstrations of God's steadfast love. And we look at the second half of that list and we resonate with that and we say, he turns, he turns dry places into water, the pools of water. He gives cities to live in. He, he gives a hungry food. Yeah, I can see God's steadfast love in that. But this whole psalm is an exercise in seeing God's steadfast love. And sometimes God's steadfast love is that it is he who tears down. Sometimes that's how God exercises his steadfast love. There's your blank. He is sovereign over all creation. It is he who tears down. He turns rivers into a desert. He turns springs of water into thirsty ground. He turns a fruitful land into a salty waste, which is a not so oblique reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. God does that in his steadfast love. Have you ever considered that it is God's steadfast love that causes him to do some of these reversals? I think of my own father's salvation and, and how God had to humble him My father did not become a Christian until the the final days of his life, and it was only after being humbled by becoming a quadriplegic, and then uh, issues in our family and turmoil there, but God humbled him. And so I look at those things as a kindness from God. I view my father's accident before he died as a kindness from God because in the big picture, this was one of the ways the Lord brought him to himself, and so how can I help but praise God for that? God's discipline in our lives is is the same type of kindness of a parent who disciplines their child. The Proverbs warn us that whoever withholds the rod hates their child, that if you love your child, you you discipline them diligently. God loves us, and his steadfast love can be seen not just in giving of gifts and not just of, of doing the things that we immediately and intrinsically see as kind, but those things that cause us to call on him. Notice back to that pattern. God will do what it takes to get us to call on him so that he can then show us through his deliverance who he is. It is he who tears down, but it is he who builds up. There's a balance here. He turns rivers into desert and springs of water into thirsty ground. But he also turns deserts into pools of water and a parched land into springs of water. There he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in and sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. And and the point again is this, that we can be tempted to trust in our own ability. This is a good land. I got a good job. Well, sure, and God can shut it off tomorrow. The Lord warned Israel in Leviticus 18 that if they were to sin, the land would vomit them out. This good land that they took to dwell in, he could, he could flip the switch, so to speak, and it could become a barren waste. The factor wasn't their ability to plan. The factor wasn't their ability to to cultivate it. It was God's goodness. Conversely, the Lord can turn meager provisions into abundance. If, if, If you're with him, you can be in a desert, and he can create pools of water. He did that with Moses, the people eating manna off the ground. The issue isn't your circumstances. The issue is your relationship to God. The issue is whether he is... Please, you are united by faith with him and therefore he is for us who can be against us or whether we rebel and then God acts against us which is Israel's history over and over again he's sovereign over all creation it's he who tears down it's he who builds up and these verses in, in 35 to 38 echo the promises of the covenant in Deuteronomy 28 Listen to this in verses 1 to 6. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field and blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of the cattle, the increase of the herds and the young and the flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The key factor again, you're faithfully obeying the Lord. We we can be so tempted to trust in our circumstances. Sodom and Gomorrah looked at the plane they're on and the situation they had. They felt secure. They felt prosperous. And the Lord overturned it. And that's the picture here is these dramatic overturnings. You, You can't be so secure that God can't unman you if he chooses. And you can't be so weak and insecure that he cannot supply your need, fight for you. Strengthen you if he chooses. He's sovereign over all creation and he's sovereign over all peoples. Look at verses 39 to 42. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and he makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad and all wickedness shuts its mouth. See, what's, what's amazing is this little tiny nation of Israel is gobbled up by Babylon. And then, and then if that's not bad enough, it's like you, know, you see the picture of the fish that ate the fish that's being swallowed by the other fish. Um, Babylon gets gobbled up by the Medo-Persians and this tiny little people group. But when the Lord chooses to turn to them, he makes kings as nothing. The text says he just moved Cyrus's heart. Why did Cyrus... Them to go back because God moved his heart to do it because God does what he wants. It's he who casts down and it's he who lifts up. And so, here the the great reversal is that when his people are low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes. He makes them wander in trackless wastes. God, God is not impressed by the power of people. You think of Nebuchadnezzar, who is made to eat grass. And here's this little humble group of Hebrews that the Lord leads back to the land, the Lord begins to lead them to rebuild their temple. He he exalts the low and raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Which brings us then to the, the conclusion, the whole point of the Psalm. Consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? The whole psalm and all this effort and its 43 verses is meant to help us to see from different angles, from different perspectives, the goodness of God's steadfast love. And I would suggest to you that if you're, if you're not amazed God's steadfast love to you, you haven't thought about it enough. There's more than just one way to look at it. One way to look at God's steadfast love to you, he, he took an alien and a stranger. The language of Ezekiel is like a child who, whose umbilical cord wasn't even tied up, just sort of cast aside, and he, he adopted them. He gave them a home. He gave them clothing. That, that's what God has done for you if you know Jesus Christ. And he's gone and prepared a place for you, and that place is going to come and touch down on earth here someday in the future. Another way to look at, at God's salvation, he, he sets prisoners free, and that's one we're familiar with. We think of amazing grace and, um, and can it be a metaphor we're very familiar with, shackled to sin and, and freed, and he heals us. And I don't think here the picture is primarily f- physical healing as much as the, the sickness of sin, the sickness of, of corruption within, although he does, as he pleases, heal And he gives those of us who are small people in a very big world, in a very tumultuous, frightening world, he gives us security. These are all ways of looking at his steadfast love. But we've also seen that his steadfast love sometimes comes in precisely to knock us down, sometimes precisely to humble us, precisely to cause us to call on him. That's his steadfast love too. When's when's the last time you thanked God for dashing your plans? You thanked God for frustrating your purposes You thanked God for giving you weakness. Paul says he boasts in his weakness because he understands that through his weakness, God shows himself to be powerful, that all these acts in our lives, both the things that we like immediately and the things that are difficult are all evidences, are all God's steadfast love at work in our life. And we would be wise to ponder these things, to think about these things. Whoever is wise, let them attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to consider your steadfast love. We want to praise your steadfast love, but we want to be awed by it, Lord. You have promised a never letting go, always and forever forever love towards us that you have placed on us not because we deserve it not because we have earned it but because you have loved us and so lord do what you need to do to cause us to call out to you do what you need to do to cause us to rely on you do what you need to do to make us love you more and trust you more lord you are our savior we trust you we worship you in jesus name amen